Hey, good morning, Crossroads. My name's Tim. Uh, I'm your equipping pastor, and I get the opportunity to continue us on in our series on the Holy Spirit. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Uh, one note I want to make, just because we kicked off this morning with uh, our youth ministry and our, our children's men, I had the opportunity to work uh, under Max and with that leadership team uh, interning for about a year. Parents, if you have middle schoolers or high schoolers, how badly do you want young, like college and older age mentors in their lives? How bad do you want that? You get it in this ministry. Invested uh, young people who want to love on your kids and back you up, just like Max said, in that effort to raise them up in the way that they should go. Those leaders are some of the best people I've ever met. They're in it. They're in the game. And they pursue your kids. So um, I just love that ministry. I also have young kids myself. And uh, my oldest, Reed, got the chance to go to VBS this year. They killed it. They did such a good job. And uh, the things he came home with just that he had learned, uh, it was just so fun to see him light up as he learned God's word. So shout out to those ministries. Let's support them well. All right. I want to read uh, Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're really going to try to land the plane this morning on verse 12. It's a familiar verse. Once your eyes get on it, you'll know it. But uh, we got to set, kind of set the tone. So let's, let's go ahead and read it, and then I'll explain what I'm talking about here. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, so I declared on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. And yet, his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works, and again in the passage above he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, just as we are right now. 
yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. Just a reminder to all of us and a note to those who are watching online, we're so grateful that you're here with us uh, in spirit. And uh, just want to remind you, we'll be taking communion at the end. So if you're at home and you want to get your elements ready, uh, feel free to do so. What we're going to talk about today is how the Word of God, wielded by the Spirit of God, is leading us into a greater experience of God's rest. We're going to talk about how the Word of God, wielded by the Spirit of God, is leading us into a greater experience of God's rest by fighting the battle for our hearts. We're being called to enter God's rest by letting God do what David said in Psalm 139. Search me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. We're going to talk about how God's word is alive and active and how it does surgery on our hearts. If we've hidden it away, if we've hidden, hidden it away in our hearts. Again, like David says in Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But before we do that, we really need to do some work to understand not only the context of the recipients of this letter, but the heart of the author for these people. We need to get into the mindset of our writer. So, with that, you probably heard it. What's on the mind of the author in chapter 4? What did you hear a ton of? What word? Rest. Good, I'm not crazy. It's in there a ton. There's a rest that's still available for the world. Think about that right now in the state that we're in. God is still offering rest to this world. Do you think it needs it right now? Now more than ever, I believe, so what I want to talk about at the beginning here is to give some, some very important context to this passage, this verse in verse 12. It's talking about what kind of rest the author is referring to. We need to get that. So before we can make sense of 12, we need to make sense of this rest. Now God has been offering it, this rest, since the day he rested from his work in creation. He offered it to Adam and Eve, but they believed a lie and it caused them to have to leave God's place of rest. It's a pattern we're gonna see and we see throughout scripture. Humanity being offered God's rest, believing a lie, and having, being led away from God's rest. So God, over time, raised up Israel and takes them out of Egypt in order to lead them into rest. This is where the writer of Hebrews picks up in chapters three and four. He says that some didn't enter God's rest, but they perished in the wilderness. So we could think that this rest this morning is the promised land. That's that resting place that we might think of, but no. Even that rest that Joshua led them through, Joshua, the first Jesus, led them through, was not the true rest that God had in mind for his people. Verse 7 says, God again set a certain day, calling it what? Today, through David. Many Jews, even today, believe that that rest, 
This rest that they had with David was the rest that God intended for them. It was a rest from their enemies. But still, it doesn't quite capture the rest our author is talking about. The rest he's talking about isn't just from our enemies. The writer says of Hebrews, there still remains a Sabbath rest for us. But that we don't have to wait for our enemies to be defeated or for our persecution to end or for our trials to be over. In, in Hebrews 3, 7, the Holy Spirit is saying, today you can enter this rest. Today is the day to enter it. It's a key note that we'll come back to later on. But the reality here is that the same God who spoke to Adam and Eve and offered them rest, and the same God who spoke the promise of rest to Israel in the desert and in the promised land as well, and throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, is still speaking those same words to us today. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to hear the living God say to them, rest right now. No matter your circumstances, no matter your temptations and your trials, rest. This rest is more than just a rest from slavery, and it's more than just a rest from the wandering in the desert, and it's more than just a rest from our enemies. It's more than just an outward rest. It's rest on the inside. This is why the writer of Hebrews, as I'll talk about later on, is telling the audience to make every effort, every effort, in verse 11, to enter this rest. Because it's a rest that we can have even if our outward circumstances are in a state of unrest and chaos. It's a rest you can have in the desert and in the promised land, on the mountaintop and in the valley, on your back deck and in the doctor's office, in social conflict and in isolation we can have rest. It's this rest that allowed Paul and Silas to sing to God while in prison. And it's a rest that allowed Christians in the early church to sing praises to their God while they were being burned at the stake and eaten alive by wild animals. It's a rest that brings contentment, security, identity, and purpose. Do you know this rest this morning, Crossroads? Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 describes this rest as being rooted in our hope in Jesus, calling it an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This rest is something that's a taste of the 24-7 rest that the whole world is going to experience on the new earth. On that day, all the peace and rest that we've clung to in our hearts and offered to the world as Christians is going to break free and it's going to be manifested in every possible way. Physical rest, spiritual rest, mental rest. Can you, can you get a sense of this? It's going to be everywhere. But for now, the rest that the author of Hebrews is calling these people to cling to, and the Holy Spirit is calling us to cling to today, is that internal rest, a rest for our hearts. What a blessing we could be to a world in a constant state of unrest to be people of rest and people who offer rest. I think this is what Jesus meant in, Hebrew, or in Matthew 11, 28, and 29 when he said, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. When the Holy Spirit pierced our hearts with the good news of the gospel and we put our hope in Jesus Christ, Jesus said to our exhausted hearts that had been clamoring for identity, security, and purpose and salvation on their own, stop, rest, I did it all for you. And in that moment, for those of us who believed, we did, didn't we? We rested. Do you remember that moment? Or that season of your life when you seemed so certain that God was with you and that he loved you and that every time he opened, you opened his word, he was speaking directly to you. In that moment, there was nothing you wouldn't do for Jesus. Nothing was off the table because we believed him at his word. It changed us. The writer of Hebrews multiple times in this letter tells the people to remember that day for themselves. And in 3.14, to hold fast to their original conviction firmly to the end. Why is he telling them this? Why does he keep telling them to hold fast to their faith and to the rest that they had experienced in the beginning? Because there's something that threatens rest. And it takes effort to fight off this threat. How many of us know that the unrest in the world doesn't stop when you become a follower of Jesus Christ? The chaos and evil in this world is ever-present. And it was ever-present for the audience of this letter. In many ways, the evil surrounding them was far greater than what we have faced to this point. So the audience... The audience of the letter to the Hebrews are Messianic Jews who are living in a highly Hellenistic culture. They value their roots, but being far from a Jewish uh, community that's more sheltered, like in Jerusalem, these Jews live their lives constantly rubbing shoulders with Greek ideology, Greek thought. It's a language they knew well and had probably grown comfortable with. Without actually naming them or where they're from, the book of Hebrews gives us plenty to go off of. If you can look with me, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. Here's what it says about them. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood by side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. These Christians have faced a great trial sometime in the past when they were young in their faith and they endured it. They stood strong and they held their faith. But later on, in 12.4, we find out that they haven't faced their toughest challenge yet. It's coming. The author knows it, and I suspect they do too. Maybe this is a group from Philippi or Thessalonica, where we have record of past persecution, or maybe Rome, 
where Christians were blamed in 64 AD, right, for the great fire. I think Dan talked about that a little while back. But the bottom line is that the worst is yet to come. The writer knows that the people are being tempted around every corner to defect from the faith and to deny Jesus. The Greeks would have them believe in Jesus along with all the other gods, just adding him to the faith. But the Jews would have them come back to their roots and live according to the laws and regulations of the old covenant. Each group is trying to bring these young Christians into their camp. Go right, go left. Each group is at this work, sometimes in subtle ways and sometimes in more oppressive ways. And all the while, government persecution is inevitable no matter what these Christians choose. Can you sense the pressure and the potential for hopelessness, doubt, and fear to be creeping into their hearts? We talked about rest. This is what unrest feels like. What does unrest feel like for you and me? When there's unrest in our families, our marriages, our finances, our health, our friendships, and our government, something starts to happen in our hearts. When there's unrest in the world around us, it can cause unrest within us. Worry, anxiety, they're all rampant today. Many of us walk around carrying heavy loads of doubt and fear and worry. We may not look like it on the outside, but on the inside, we're exhausted. On top of our anxiety and worry, we're too busy to notice the effects that carrying these burdens are having on us. Rather than letting God work on the worry and the fear that we carry in our hearts, we distract ourselves with busyness and entertainment. We may look fine on the outside, but inside, we feel like we've got two windows, too many tabs open on the screen. When there's unrest, chaos, and trials of any kind in our lives, our hearts become vulnerable. The writers of the New Testament knew this very well. No matter what New Testament letter you open to, unrest, chaos, and persecution typically are a part of everyday life for the recipients. But what's interesting about the New Testament writers is that none of them seem to be overly concerned about these things. Paul again and again tells his listeners not to fear persecution. Jesus himself says don't worry about persecution. In fact, expect it. And don't worry about the world and the chaos because I've overcome it. Over and over again in our passage today, today even in this passage, the threat that concerns New Testament writers the most is not persecution, it's not competing philosophies, it's not trials of any kind. No, it's not an outside threat. It's an inside threat. It's inside the walls of the community of God, right here, this morning. More specifically, it's inside each and every one of us. And it's the deceitfulness of sin. Go back with me to Hebrews 3.13 for a second. You can get your eyes on it. It says this. But exhort one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by what? Sin's deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness, which has the power to harden human hearts, is the greatest threat to our rest. 
So we understand now what rest is, and we understand that the greatest threat to rest is the deceitfulness of sin. But really quickly, here's what the deceitfulness of sin looks like. Or another way to put it, simply, it's lies. Lies that appeal to the desires of our flesh. Lies that draw us away from God's rest. We see this in the wilderness with Israel, right? They're constantly going astray, thinking about the meat pots in Egypt, believing the lie that God doesn't care for them, holding God in contempt for not having enough water and completely disobeying God because they believed that the giants in the land were too strong for them. God says of them through David in Psalm 95, 10, and 11, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. If we spend enough time, guys, listening to the lies that the world around us is offering, lies about where to find security and where to find strength, where to find our identity and where to find rest, we'll eventually just stop listening to God altogether. Before we know it, our hearts will be full of lies that take root and harden our hearts. And instead of trusting and obeying God like we once had, disobedience arises. The word for disobedience in verse 11 is apithia. It means to be in opposition to. Catch that, opposition to. It's not being on the fence a little. It's not having a doubt or two. It's not being a little scared. It's hopping the fence, plugging your ears, and running away from God's word. It means we've literally cut God off. We become embittered. We're holding God in contempt for not coming through for us or for not filling the blank. Do you have any areas of your life where you're holding God in contempt this morning? Where you're being disobedient? Where you're not even willing to listen to God's thoughts on a matter anymore? You've given up on him. If so, here's my question for you. What lies are you believing? And that's not a condemning word to you. I've been there. They creep in without us even noticing. St. Anthony, a third century monk, he said, Satan rarely attacks with physical attack or visions first, but with a thought. And if he can get us there, right up in here, that's all he needs to do. So where are you believing a lie this morning? Where have you stopped trusting in God at his word? In these moments, we need to do the hard work of not letting our hearts grow hard. And this is where the author leads us in the conversation next. If you're like me, at this point, reading through all this stuff about rest in Hebrews chapter 4, you're probably thinking, what the heck? What the heck does this have to do with verse 12? Or as I asked it, what does verse 12 have to do with all of this? God's word is a sword. What's going on? The effects of the deceitfulness of sin are very dangerous, and it would be fair to say as we move into verse 12 now, 
that this verse is a strong warning about disobedience. And in a way, it is. It's especially easy to take it this way when we see language like alive and active, sword, penetrating, judging. But we need to read verse 12 with a better understanding of the heart of the author right now for these people. He thinks the world of these Christians. He knows their faith has been proven time and time again. So what is he doing when he says, make every effort to enter God's rest because God sees your heart. And his word is exposing what's inside. That's basically what he's saying in verses 11 and 12. What's he doing? What our author is doing is he's looking these incredible Christian men and women in the face as they stand on the cusp of facing their greatest threat. And like any good shepherd, he's pointing them to their greatest encouragement. That encouragement is this. Nothing is hidden from God. Not your sin, not your struggles. Not your faith, not your effort to fight. He sees it all. He sees all of you this morning. In the deepest places of your heart where no one else knows what you're wrestling with, he sees it. And because you're going to have to give an account someday to him, he wants to do surgery on your heart. He wants to help us. If you don't agree with me about this, just go ahead and sneak your eyes down to verses 15 and 16, but we'll get there in a minute. For you and me this morning, is it encouraging or discouraging to know that God's word is alive and active and can discern and judge the thoughts and desires of our hearts? Encouraging or discouraging? In our times of trial, when our hearts are spinning, Our heads are spinning, our hearts are heavy. When we're so hurt or we're so scared or we're so mad or we're so afraid or so overwhelmed and we're so busy with all the chaos of life and we can't even think straight, what do we need most? We don't need more lies. Our heads are full of them. We don't need more words from the media or politicians who we can't trust. What do we need? We need a word from the Lord, don't we? I know I need it. We need God to cut through all the junk that's going on inside of us and bring some clarity to the matter. Even if it reveals lies, even if it reveals hardness of heart, even if it reveals my own disobedience. I mentioned it earlier, David says in Psalm 139, he welcomes this work. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. Cut that out of there. It's so good to be pierced by God's word. It's so good to let God in so that he can do battle with our greatest threat. So that he can start to cut away all the deceitfulness and the lies that we let get in. Those things that are leading us away from God's rest. So I hope it's an encouraging thing for you to hear this morning that God's word is alive and active during times of your trials and it's aimed right at your heart. He's aiming right for the heart. But I understand if it isn't. I know there's times in my life when I'm wrestling with thoughts and considering things that I know that I shouldn't 
And in those moments, I'd sometimes rather avoid God's word. Opening this thing up, I'll pass. Because the thought of having to deal with those things sounds really hard and painful. Sometimes we like that hidden sin. It hurts to be cut by God's word because it's so accurate. It touches aspects of my life that no other book can. Can you attest to that? Can you attest to that this morning? All right. How does it do that? Just a quick story, testimony of how the word of God has done this in my life recently. I can be honest with you guys, right? This is family. My wife and I, my amazing wife, Shayla, have been going through a hard time. Our marriage has been on uh, a little bit of attack lately. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm proud of us though, because we're, we're doing the work to not settle for an average marriage. We're fighting to, to, to move into what God intends for marriage, but it's so hard. And we've surrounded ourselves with mentors and friends, and we've sought God's word. And it's funny, <laughs> I was preparing to do a wedding a couple of weeks ago, and I'm in Ephesians chapter 5 where it says Jesus laid down his life for the church. And I had to just like, whew, I had to push the Bible aside and walk away for a minute. So I hadn't been doing that. And at some point in the chaos of having three kids and making a really intelligent decision to get a puppy and then <laughs> learning how to do ministry, it just, I was, I was taking in lies and I wasn't taking in truth and I had forgotten the simplest, plainest truth that you can have as a married person. Lay down your life for your spouse. Don't worry about getting it back. It's a free gift. And it cut me with such timing and such accuracy. So how does God's word do this? I want to talk about how God's word is alive and active in our lives. God's word is alive and active and effective because God is alive. Where his word is, God is at work. Where his word is not yet finished or fully actualized, he's still working. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11 tells us that it won't return to him unfinished or void. Philippians 1, 6 says, he who began a good work in us, in us will what? Finish it. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes how the word of God is still at work in you. It's still working and it's evidenced. I can see it. There's evidence to it through your faith. Where God's word is, he is bringing it to completion. I know this because of his track record. He hasn't failed yet. All his promises keep coming true. If you have a testimony today of how God has worked through his word and been faithful to you, he's proven true on his promise in your life, tell somebody. Write it on the chat this morning. Share it with someone on your way out. We need to encourage one another while it is still called today. We need to be reminded that where God's word is, God is at work. God's word is alive and active and effective because it's wielded by the spirit of God. Point number two, the Holy Spirit didn't forge it over a, those thousands of years of writing through human authors just to leave it on the battlefield. He's wielding it. Ephesians 6.17 says, what does it say? Does it say, take up the sword of the pastor? 
take up the sword of the saint. No, it says take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's, it says take the sword of the spirit. Do you know what that means? It means it's not your sword. And it means it's not my sword. How many times do we try to hack away at our neighbors or our coworkers or our kids or our spouse or our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ trying to help, but instead just drawing blood, hurting them? It's because it's not our sword. We can take it with us, and we're called to do that, but just like my three-year-old with scissors, better get some help before you try to use them. Apart from the Spirit's help, we all, all we'll ever do is damage to other people. We need the Spirit's help to wield this. He wrote the thing, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and 2 Peter 1, 21. So he's the most trustworthy to make the cuts. Think about that for your own study of Scripture for this week. How often do you just let the Word of God run through you? How often do you just listen and ask God to search your heart and to do surgery on it? It can be a painful way to study, but I promise it's worth it. For some of us, though, our issue isn't that we don't allow the Spirit to wield the sword in our hearts. It's that we don't have enough of the sword in our hearts. How often do we memorize scripture today? I, I, that was a little a thing I grew up with. I just don't see it quite as much now. Now, I'm not a gamer, and I'm kind of like scanning through here for Paul Davison and his small group of high schoolers. I know they're gamers, but I'm going to try an analogy here, or an illustration. It's like, so I grew up playing, what, Halo, and your, your character would spawn on the battlefield, right? And you have to go searching for a weapon. You have to find it as people are shooting at you, Right? Some gamers here, heads nodding, I'm, I'm getting it. When, the, when, the, when you receive Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit spawns in your heart, he's running around looking for something to wield to help you out, and you've given him a little pocket knife. I got John 3.16, right? That ain't going to cut it. We do need to grow and mature in our faith. Where there's time and there's grace and there's patience God has, but he's calling us to be in his word. He's calling us to bring the sword along so that in the hands of the Holy Spirit, he can wield it to work on the things we need most. What else makes God's word, wielded by the spirit of God, so effective in our lives? I want to share just a few ideas with you to consider. God's word is effective in our, in our lives because when we open it, one, we get immediate access to the author. As Christians, we believe that the author of scripture is God, amen? And that this word is a special revelation to us of who he is and what he's doing in us and in the world. So we get access to him. We get immediate access also to his heart. The Spirit of God knows the heart of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 14 says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of, 
spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught as human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The work of the word reveals the heart of God to us, and that is such a gift we should not take it for granted. We also get immediate access to someone who has full access to us. If you could sit down with an author of a book and get to know them, that's really great. Get to hear their heart behind the Lord of the Rings or whatever it is. But very rarely can you sit down with an author who can reach into your soul and name everything about you. The Spirit is able to put his finger on things in our lives because he knows us. And when we take the time to open the book that he wrote, he's going to point at the places he knows we need it most. Thank you, Lord. The Spirit in many theology books and ancient writings has two major names, the searcher and the revealer. He searches and reveals the heart of God, but he searches and reveals our hearts. Spirit knows spirit. We get immediate access through the word to everything that we could ever need for life and godliness. You're not going to find a book that speaks more fully to what you need for life. Where the moral rules don't apply, though, because we're always looking for a rule, we get wisdom. When there's not a hard, fast answer, which we all love, there's wisdom of the scriptures. Young people, I'm young too, but younger than me. Your future spouse's name may be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but it's not in this one. You need wisdom, right? You need wisdom to make great decisions like that. And there's a lot of decisions that we need God's help with. Nothing's being withheld from us because there's not a quick answer in the word. We just got to do the work. It's not complicated. It's costly. And finally, the word of God is effective because we get immediate access to a litmus test for the voice of God. The word of God is all about Jesus. We know that here at Crossroads, Old Testament and New Testament. Because of this, we can know that when the spirit speaks, he speaks about him. The word is like a built-in third party, confirming what is from the spirit and what isn't. I used to work for a commercial snow and ice removal company and we'd go in and in our marketing and our sales efforts, we would tell people, we can provide the safest possible environment for your, for your, uh, your parking lot and your sidewalks and all of that. But people can only take your word so far, right? So what we ended up doing at this company is that we got a third-party auditor to come in, check us out, see if we're the real deal, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we say we're doing, and then put their stamp of approval on it. So then I could come in and I could talk to a potential client and say, here's, here's what I'm saying. Here's why you should choose us, but don't take my word for it. Put it up to the litmus test. Here's our third-party auditor who, who can prove it. So the word of God is, is very similar to this. The Holy Spirit always speaks of Jesus. If it doesn't sound like Jesus, smell like Jesus, taste like Jesus, walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, then it's not a word from the Spirit. It's not a word from God. Revelation 19.10 says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
So because of all these reasons, we can trust the word of God in our times of need when our hearts need a reliable, powerful word. Do you need that this morning? As I said before, the work that God does on our hearts can be painful, though. That potential for pain can cause us to believe the lie that God can't be trusted, that God doesn't work for our own good, that God isn't a safe space, that he doesn't have our best in mind. But the writer of Hebrews didn't believe this about God when he spoke to his friends. He believed that those very thoughts were old, old lies that the enemy used way back in the desert and in the garden. Now more than ever, we need to become people who know this word and let it do surgery on our hearts every single day so that the lies of the enemy don't lead us into disobedience and keep us from the rest that God has for us. Now more than ever, we need to be people who know how to do what Jesus did in his desert trials. We need to know how to counter deceitfulness with the words, it is written. I want to end with an opportunity for everyone here at home and in the gathering space to have a time of reflection. The old desert monks, who I studied a lot in seminary, they uh, used to call what Jesus did in the desert antiretikus, or translated means talking back. I hear a lot of people talking back these days, talking back to people who threaten our rights, threaten our comforts, threaten our beliefs. But no one seems to be talking back to the real enemy, the one who's threatening our rest. What if we were to spend less time this week talking at others on social media and trying to shut them up, and more time talking back to the enemy in our hearts and trying to shut him up? The Desert Fathers worked and worked and worked to memorize scripture that directly spoke against the, the temptation that they were most vulnerable to. They believed that this is what it means to take the sword of the Spirit along with you, the Word of God. This is why when a temptation came, they were able to say that passage from memory, even if they didn't have the Bible on hand, and let it do work on their hearts. So let's do that now together if we can. I want to give us a time to identify some of the lies that maybe in this chaotic season have crept into each of our hearts. Lies we've been believing. And I'm going to ask that you try to recall or open up your Bible this morning and find a passage that directly speaks against that lie. I know it might be tough on the spot, so I asked some of our family members here at Crossroads to come up with a few for me this week. We're going to put those up on the screen. I want you to take a few minutes, and this will be an extended period of time. We're trying to settle in to what God might want to be doing in our gathering space a little bit more. And so this is going to be some time you can read them on the screen, but be thinking and let God work on your heart. What lies have crept into your heart? And what passage of Scripture can call that lie out and cut it out. All right? If you need some space uh, to, to think about that, you have it. If you want to write it up on our prayer board, you can do that. If you're online, post it on the chat. And we're just going to sit in this space as the worship team leads us for a while. All right? All right?